Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Hi again, Dr. Cubitt. Hi, Katie. How are you today? I'm good. I am glad to be back to talk part two about carb sensitivity and some of the diseases that are related to it, but more specifically talking about strategies to limit NSC intake uh, for horses. And so I think I think it's going to be a really good conversation today. Excellent. Yes, I know that there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of horse owners that deal with this on a daily basis and they really can feel like they're chasing their tail sometimes. So hopefully we can help them out, enlighten them, give them a few of the answers to their questions. Yeah, that'll be great. So to kind of bring us back to what we were talking about a little bit before, um, talking about the differences between structural carbohydrates and non-structural carbohydrates, just to summarize a little bit, you had mentioned structural carbohydrates, which is fiber, is really that that's something that cannot be removed from a horse's diet. They need that to make their, their digestive system work properly. Yep. And then you also had mentioned that we can't actually truly have a low carb diet um, in horses, but we can have low sugars and starches in their diet because, you know, if you have low carb, they still need those structural carbohydrates. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So that's what we were talking a little bit about before. So going into what are some strategies now, now that we've talked a little bit about what carbohydrates are and the diseases that are related to them, what can we actually do from a feed management position to help those horses and kind of give them a better life in that sense and control that in a way that, you know, if it's ignored, it can make those diseases worse. Wow. There are so many different things that we can do, but I think it really starts with the first question is how is the horse currently being managed? Does the horse have access to pasture? And if the answer is yes, then we need to discuss, um, trying to mitigate or minimize the non-structural carbohydrate intake or the sugars and starches intake from that pasture. So what times of the day might you be able to turn your horse out? When is the the pasture highest in sugars and starches? Which pastures are highest in sugars and starches? Um, So I think we mentioned that cool season grasses, which are our Timothy and orchard grass, um, that we see flourishing in the spring and fall. Those uh, we need to be really cautious of because they store their energy as sugar. Our warm season grasses that we're going to see more in the southern areas like Bermuda grass, Rome, they are going to store their energy as starch and they really don't store that much of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, if we look at just the within one day, one 24-hour period, when are the sugars highest in pasture grasses? They're actually highest Um between say five in the afternoon and and midnight, because if we've had a sunny day, the sun is shining down on those grasses, photosynthesis is occurring, which is um, the 
biochemical pathway by which these grasses are utilizing the sun's energy to create energy within themselves to create that that sugar. So throughout the day, the sun is shining on these plants and they're accumulating sugars. And then at night, if the um, environmental and climatic conditions are correct, then they're going to grow. So first thing in the morning is when those pastures would be at their lowest sugar mm-hmm. content. Because they've so used up the horse, sugar, right? From growing absolutely, overnight. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you have a horse that um, isn't actively laminitic or actively sick, and you're just trying to, you know, maximize your pasture, because when you put them out to pasture, they also get exercise, which is good. So maybe you just have a fat horse that you're a little concerned about, then you would be turning them out first thing in the morning, you'd be using a grazing muzzle to minimize the intake. Um, But you'd definitely be bringing them in by 10 10 or 11 o'clock in the daytime. Part two, then a lot of people just take their horses completely off pasture or they do not have access to pasture. We see more and more of our horse facilities just don't have enough uh, land to support the horses uh, on a pasture-based diet. And the pastures are usually used more for socialization versus nutrient content. So if they're getting all of their fiber and the potential sugars and starches out of what we are providing them, then the hay is the biggest part of the diet. Mm-hmm. So we need to make sure that the hay has the right uh, sugar and starch content. And then obviously, when we're looking further down the track, we're looking at what bagged concentrates are we feeding the horses um, and kind of step down from there. So there's a lot of different things that we need to look at in this plan. So then you talked about like uh, a horse that is laminitic or whatever, maybe they have some sort of other disease where they need to limit their sugar and starch intake. You'd mentioned, you know, right first thing in the morning, you know, bringing them out to pasture with a grazing muzzle. So that gives them what, three or four hours or so to graze? Yes. Um, and then you yes, and then you have your other horses where you said there's some environments where people just they don't have the ability to put them out on pasture. So then you have to rely on strictly just a hay a diet. But just in general, since we're talking about this, what is the normal time that a horse is out on pasture and grazes? Like if they have, you know, all free access to pasture and they can be out and roaming around, how many hours out of the day are they doing that? If we look at wild horses, um as the kind of gold standard for normal, then they're going to graze for about 17 hours out of the day. And they're going to constantly move while they're grazing. Mm -hmm. And they're going to eat a wide variety of different forages in the day. They're going to eat, you know, all different kinds of plants. Okay. We've established that early morning is the best because that is when the plant has used up all of its sugar that it has stored overnight. Then it will start replenishing it probably what late into mid to late morning. And so that's the most ideal time. Is there, you talked about spring and fall are kind of the more cautionary seasons that we need to be more careful about with grazing. What changes in the spring and and fall specifically in uh, the sugar uptake with plants versus summer, for example? We have an abundance of um, plant growth and plant availability in the spring and fall. So it's just more quantity of availability. In the summertime, we see that our, you know, our cool season grasses die off because it's very hot. So they're less prone to be causing an issue. Mm -hmm. And if they haven't completely died off, they've just stopped growing. Um, And so there's just less actual plant matter for the horse to consume. Mm -hmm. Same thing in the wintertime. There's just less plant matter for that 
that animal to consume. But in the spring and fall, we see this increase in growth. Now, I do want to point out one caveat to the early morning scenario is if the previous evening was very cold um, and frosty, then it's too cold for that plant to grow. So it won't grow at night. So first thing in the morning after a frost, the sugars will still be high in the pastures. You also made mention to there's like a three to four hour window that we might be turning these horses out. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, oh, it's only three to four hours. How much can my horse actually eat Mm -hmm. in three to four hours? I won't put the grazing muzzle on. Do put the grazing muzzle on. Research has shown, especially in ponies, they are really nifty and efficient at consuming very large quantities in a short period Mm -hmm. of time. So they will start to learn, we're only going to be out here for a couple of hours. We've got to work really hard to consume large quantities um, because they're going to put us back inside on our kind of weight loss program. Okay. I'm glad that you brought that up about the frost because... I don't know if anyone would have thought about that with it being too cold for the plants to grow at night. So, mm-hmm. and that's probably especially going to happen when you're obviously dealing with the spring and fall where summer, it doesn't it's drop nights. down very yes. cold mm-hmm. and you have like kind of a, it stays pretty warm at night, but then you get into that seasonal transition. And I was just thinking about that as we were transitioning from summer to fall this year, how it would be so easy in the morning in the summer to just be able to go out without having to even wear a jacket or anything like that. But then you get into fall and you're putting on layers because it seems so cold. And then in the afternoon, you're stripping down layers because you're like, oh my gosh, it's so hot outside. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the other thing to for people to remember too, is a lot of times I'll go to places and I'll say, well, we don't really have any pasture. We don't have any plants for the horses to eat. We have them on a dry lot. And I look at the dry lot and it's got lots of short little shoots all over it, but it's little nubs of of pastures or weeds or grasses. Those are super, super stressed. And so when they're super, super stressed, they're not growing. They too are accumulating large quantities of sugar. Now, there's not a lot of abundance of the plant for the animal to consume, but it's full of sugar. Okay. Yeah. So when you make a dry lot, you need to kill it Make all. Make sure it's all cleaned up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and kill a buffer because we've all seen ponies oh, yes. with their head <laughs> kneeled down, with their head under the fence. So you got to have like a two foot buffer at least around your dry lot or an electric tape to stop them putting, you know, grass is always greener on the other side. You know what, Dr. Cuba, I, my horses do the exact same thing, but they have nice green grass in the pasture that they're in. But of course... The grass that is outside of the fence is definitely better and they have to find a way to get to it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Stubborn things. It's funny. So then aside from those that are in situations where, you know, they have no choice, they don't have pasture availability to them anyway. But at what point is a decision made that we need to take a horse completely off of pasture. So I'm assuming, I guess maybe it would be when you do the grazing in the morning, grazing muzzle, and they're still having a hard time limiting those sugars. Help us understand that a little bit better. Usually we get to the place that you're describing because no practical measures have been implemented until it was too late. So we're going along, we're going along, and now all of a sudden my horse has got laminitis, he's got really sore feet and the veterinarian comes and says, you got to get your horse off this grass and know that obesity is, it is the, the 
the pebble that falls in the pond for a lot of these animals. It is what trickles out and causes all of these other disorders somewhat stem from the horse being overweight. And the longer the horse is overweight, the more his metabolic profile changes forever. And it doesn't matter whether you give him the best diet and you give him plenty of exercise, his metabolic profile has changed. So that's why I'm, I'm always a proponent of being very proactive and using your body condition scoring chart, using your crusty neck scoring chart, listening to your veterinarian when they say your horse is getting a little overweight or getting a little crusty, we need to do something about mm -hmm. it before the conversation is your horse has uh, inflammation in its feet and it's going to be laminitic, laminitic and you know it's the worst case scenario. So to go back to your question, it's not usually that people, well, we've we've tried this and we've tried the the minimal grazing and that didn't work and it didn't work. It's more if it was too little, too late. The horse yeah. is just it's too little, too late. The yep. horse is really fat and maybe he he ate a little too much grain or he was eating some spring grass um the other thing that we get to is as animals age they decrease their ability to deal with these sugars and starches and so as we start to get older horses that have uh, every year they've been fine 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 and they're gaining weight and they're gaining weight and then every year they get older and then it just randomly happens one year when you seem to be have done done the same things you've done every other year and you haven't changed anything, but this is the year that he's got sore feet um, or he's, he's you know, developed uh, not shedding his hair coat because he's got Cushing's. Um, and that's just as animals age, they're more likely to develop Cushing's and as animals age, they're less able to deal with those sugars and starches um, and being overweight. So mm. it's it's just not healthy to be fat. Yes. Okay. So we're going to be going a little bit more in depth on beet pulp in the future, but what are your thoughts on feeding beet pulp to a carb sensitive horse or, you know, a horse that's suffering from any of those diseases that are related to it? Well, let's just expand it and say beet pulp in general. What are the benefits of beet pulp? Beet pulp is a super fiber. It's very highly digestible. Um, some consider it a prebiotic because it really feeds those bacteria in that live in the hindgut. The whole premise behind beet pulp is all of the sugars or majority of the sugars have been sucked out of it to use in human foods and, and uh, sugar industry, human yeah. diets mm -hmm. and the sugar industry. And so we have this fibrous pulp that's left over that is very, as I mentioned, very digestible for horses, pretty high in uh, energy content similar to the energy content of oats, but it's that fibrous digestion uh, occurring in the hindgut by fermentation versus your true sugars that are maybe and starches coming from cereal grains being digested in the small intestine by enzymes. So um, there's a, a whole slew of reasons why I like beet pulp, adding it to the diet, but specifically talking about the horses that have carbohydrate or, or sugar and starch sensitivities, I like it because it is low in, in carbohydrates because as I mentioned, that that's the whole premise of the product. It is a byproduct of the sugar mm -hmm. industry. The fibrous fraction is left over um, as the sugars have been sucked out. Mm -hmm. And it offers that extra additional fiber source uh, for those horses that could use it or benefit from it or mm -hmm. absolutely. We've talked a little bit before about especially if a horse and this could be a horse that does just fine regularly or a horse that is carb sensitive, 
maybe like they're struggling with their water intake. Um, you have mentioned before how good bee pulp is because generally you soak it when, before you feed it. And if you don't, you know, drain any of that water off, it's a really nice, easy way for that horse to increase their intake of water. Absolutely. There's kind of right now, as we're recording this, um, we're going into the fall. And so this is a transitional season where we really are concerned about horses developing impaction colic. So that's when the GI tract just is dried out and there's not enough moisture. So um, this is a time of year where if you have a horse that uh, is susceptible to impaction colic, then I always recommend adding some beet pulp and wetting it because you're getting the extra moisture in the gut. It's digestible. And I, I am fascinated by hindgut function. That's the largest part of the horse's digestive mm-hmm. system. It's where everything goes on. There's this you know, grouping of organisms that we call the microbiome, and it really runs the horse. This this slew of different microbes and bacteria and viruses. Um, And in order to keep that healthy, we need to have a diversity. And in order to have diversity, we need to feed a variety of different fibers. So again, adding beet pulp to the diet is a way to add a different type of fiber to help feed those bacteria. We know from research that that microbiome, if we look at the microbiome of horses that say um, have metabolic syndrome or laminitis, their microbiome, the diversity of that microbiome is much narrower, so less diversity than a healthy horse. So whilst we're trying to treat the symptoms that we're seeing, the sore feet, we're trying to decrease the sugars and starches in the diet. We also need to help feed that microbiome. So give it different fiber sources um, because that microbiome being diverse in itself is going to help that horse be healthier. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. I wanted to touch back on a topic that we discussed on the last episode. So our part one on carb sensitivity. We had discussed a little bit about NSC levels, and that's generally what horse owners who have horses that, you know, are insulin resistant or, you know, have Cushing's or something like that. That's generally, they're asking about that number in any of the feed products that they put in the feed program of their horse or forage. They're asking about, well, what is that maximum amount of NSC percent can we feed? And you've talked about how like a gold standard uh, across the board is 10% or less of sugars and starches and total in the diet. But then we were discussing uh, at a different time about how there's numbers that fluctuate all over the board sometimes, but it goes so much more deeper into that. It's off. So often we look at ingredient by ingredient. And so you think about that 10% and okay, so I'm feeding alfalfa, I need to make sure that it is 10% or less here, I'm feeding this type of concentrate, it needs to be 10% less here. But so often, we're not looking at the total diet. Talk to me a little bit about that. This is a really great question because I think that horse owners can end up just chasing their tail. And when we were prepping for this, I literally had you write down on a piece of paper an example, because I think we're all visual and we need to be able to see it. So those of you at home that are listening to this, if you're not driving, mm-hmm. get out a pen and paper and write these down with me so that you can follow along. 24% of one pound 
is 3.84 ounces. 12% of 2 pounds is also 3.84 ounces. 6% of 4 pounds is also 3.84 ounces. And 3% of 8 pounds is also 3.84 ounces. And the point being is that percentages mean nothing zip, zero, nothing, unless you're applying them to a value. I could tell you 100%. 100% of what? A grain of rice? Well, that's nothing. Mm -hmm. Versus 1%, 1% of what? Jumbo jet? That's a lot. Right. So we need to make sure that we're not just relying on percentages, but we're actually thinking about, well, how much are we actually feeding? Because you mentioned total diet. That's where people forget. We're supposed to look at the total diet and the whole diet, the hay, the concentrate, the supplements, the whole thing mashed together that that total diet is less than 10%. Not that every individual part of it is, but the whole thing combined is less than 10%. So I just encourage you not to disregard certain ingredients that you might put in your diet because maybe they're 12%. Um, or 13% non-structural carbohydrates. If you're only feeding one or two pounds of it, then it's not going to affect the total diet. Yeah, that was, when you had me do that exercise, I was like, I have never thought about this from this perspective before, but it makes complete sense and it definitely helps. So even if you are driving right now, um, go back to this part in the episode and write it down because visually looking at it, you're like, oh, yes, that is absolutely correct. I don't know why I've never thought about that before, but sometimes it's it's nice to have those uh, visual reminders to kind of put you in check and be like, okay, so maybe I need to take a step back and look at this. And I think this also goes to show how important having a nutrition expert, a part of your team is because that's your job, right? Is helping build these great nutrition programs for horses. And this percentage example goes for protein in the diet, potassium for horses that may be sensitive to potassium. I mean, it goes for everything. Yep. All of the different uh, nutrients that we work with. Yeah, that's great. So let's uh, jump into some scenarios. I know that we could probably go on and on and on about this forever and ever, especially, you know, if we had people bringing in their own situations, their own horses and, and everything, but let's just discuss some of them just to give people a picture of, you know, the forage that we're looking at, what the horses should be eating, just depending on, you know, a number of different things. So let's say we have an underweight horse who is sensitive to sugars and starches. Give me an example Perfect. of how you would kind of build a diet Feed for them. this horse. Yeah. And I know it depends on activity level and things like that too, but Let's, but that's the very first question that you have to ask though. Is the horse currently overweight or underweight? That is the very first question Mm -hmm. that we ask. And in this scenario, he's underweight. So I am now going to lean towards alfalfa as an excellent forage choice. Alfalfa, adding some beet pulp as excellent forage choices for this horse because they're much higher in calories than some of our other low carb options. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to add some fat to the diet. 
Maybe we can add some, you know, vegetable oil to add some extra calories along with whatever source of vitamins and minerals we're using. But as far as forages, we're going to lean towards using beet pulp and alfalfa. Again, alfalfa is a legume, remember, Mm -hmm. so it doesn't store a lot of starch. Um, So it is a great option for these horses. High calorie, good quality protein that's going to help with muscle development, and it's low in carbohydrates. And then going into winter right now, having an underweight horse, and this is probably if if you know you haven't been able to do it at a point before that now is that time because you know the increase of whatever that they would need to be able to keep themselves warm in the winter time that's that many more calories that they're going to have to put in to to their body yes. it once it gets cold you're really running uphill yeah. trying to get weight on them because they're definitely using a lot more calories just to stay warm. But as a quick side note for any of our horses, a, a byproduct of fiber digestion in the hindgut is heat. So the best way to keep your horse warm in the wintertime is feed it plenty of fiber. Mm-hmm. So even for the thin horse, I'm going to add in a little bit of a more stemmy fiber yeah. as long as it's low in carbohydrate right. because I want those bacteria to work hard and produce a lot of heat. So make sure those horses have plenty of fiber in front of them so that they're they're creating an internal heat as well. Yes. So go back now. We've talked about underweight, overweight. You have an overweight horse that can, you know, they really need to limit those sugars and starches in their diet. And this, this is really, you know, we use the terms easy keeper and hard mm-hmm. keeper, and we've kind of talked about what we would stereotypically call the hard keeper. He's thin. And now we're going to talk about the fat horse who is the easy keeper. Really, we should flip flop those terms because it is actually very hard to manage a fat horse and not fall in the trap of of just transferring one problem to another. So we're going to put this horse on a restricted diet to try and get his body weight under control. And doing that, we have to make sure that we don't develop gastric ulcers because we're not giving him enough forage. So which forages are we going to select for this horse? We're going to lean more towards things like teff. Your uh, teff pellets are ideal for this horse. It's a warm season grass. Therefore, it is also storing its energy as starch and it doesn't have a lot of uh, room to store it. So it's very low in sugars and starches. Um, It's a little less nutrient dense than uh, something like orchard grass. So this fat horse isn't going to get a lot of extra calories out of it, but it's fiber that is going to keep them healthy. It's going to keep their gut functioning. It's going to give them something to chew on so that they're producing saliva, which is buffering that stomach acid. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, this is, this is the really hard horse to feed. Uh, Yes. Yes. Okay. So then another scenario type, uh, again, I know that we could have probably multiple podcast episodes on each of these. But um, when we're looking at a horse that has insulin resistance, or they are laminitic or Cushing's disease, are there different forage recommendations? Because those are all related, like you talked about before, like kind of umbrella for carb sensitivity. Are there different forage recommendations for those types of diseases with certain horses? My question always starts with, is it fat or thin? And then I make the recommendation based on that. I don't really say, okay, I'm going to feed this horse with insulin resistance different to the horse okay. with laminitis, different to the fat horse. I start start always with fat or thin, fat or thin. Okay. So any of those those horses, if they're underweight, 
whether they are insulin resistant, laminitic, or they have Cushing's disease, more than likely, depending on if there are any other things going on, um, you're going to be recommending alfalfa. And then yes. overweight, same same lineup. Those ones would be something yeah. like that, the warm season grass like teff. Yeah, teff. And whilst Timothy is not a warm season grass, it's a cool season grass. Well, it's lower in nutritional value. So we'll lean that way too. Okay. So what if, uh, for example, if somebody doesn't have availability of like a warm season grass like teff and they have an overweight horse, and let's say they have Timothy available or orchard grass available. Do you recommend soaking it or what What would you tell somebody I who doesn't have it? 100% first recommend you get a hay test. Okay. If you're buying local hay, you need to get a hay test. And that there is going to tell you how much flexibility you have with that. Let's just say that hay comes back and it's got 13 or 14% sugars and starches. And you have a horse that's actively sick. So we really want to get it less than 10%. Because remember, the forage is the largest part of the diet. So I really do stick with um, those percentages when I'm dealing with such large quantities. So I want to get it less than 10%. If, we're, if we get the hay test back, and we're at 13, 14%, I will soak it. And nine times out of 10, I'm going to get enough sugar out of it and starch that we're going to be now less than 10%. If I get that hay test back and it's 18% sugars and starches, it, you're not going to be able to soak it and get all of that out. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so it's really, it's a matter of finding a good source. So, uh, I mean, yes. the nice thing with Stanley is we have our guaranteed analysis that you know, with our growing conditions, we have the ability to have science on our side and keep our product consistent. So that's that makes that a, a nice option for people if they're looking for something that's consistent. They maybe they don't have the means of being able to go out and get a hay test all the time or, you know, whatever their situation is. So absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the things that I think is the best about Stanley Hay is it is a if you ever get the chance to visit those facilities, those farms, this isn't just, you know, growing grass and baling. This is a scientific operation. And the climatic conditions in their area of the country are such that they can irrigate exactly when they need to. It's dry, so there's low humidity. They're soil testing and putting exactly the right amount of fertilizer down on those fields. So when I talk about optimal growing conditions for plants and increasing the growth of those plants so that they're going to utilize that sugars and starches. And that's exactly what Stanley does. You know, they've got optimal growth. These plants are actively growing. So across the board, you're going to find that most of their products are pretty low in sugars and starches to start with mm -hmm. just because of the ideal growing conditions. I will say I do enjoy living in Idaho. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the rain and moisture in general, or even the humidity. So, you know, being in a drier climate is a lot easier on me personally. And so it sounds like it's pretty good for our, our forages as well. Perfect for the hay too. <laughs> yeah, works out really nicely. So one other question, uh, last question, I think I want to talk about, um, at least for today, you talked a little bit before about impaction colic, and I know there's a, a lot of things that are kind of related to colic in general, but a question that had come up previously when we were doing one of our webinars was wondering, is there any connection between colic and some of these diseases like laminitis, Cushing's disease, or anything like that? Like any, Are any of those horses that have those conditions more prone to colic? Oh, well, that, that just opened up just a whole a, other can of worms. That's a whole can of worms. 
syndromes. <laughs> I will say if you go the other way, um, if a horse develops colic, then uh, definitely that can be a toxic environment. You can have toxins flowing out into the bloodstream and down into the hooves, and they can certainly develop um, kind of a, lam- a type of laminitis from that. Um, yes, but everything is connected. Yeah. And so... Uh, it's very hard to answer that. Okay. Well, we'll go, maybe we'll uh, go into it a little bit deeper as we go into more episodes specifically on um, maybe colic in general and how that, you know, how it affects horses and certain horses and certain situations, certain environments and things like that. So we'll just have to stay tuned for another episode, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's been really great talking about uh, the some strategies that horse owners can kind of take back and think about, um, you know, things things to think about, right? So when is a good time to be having their horse out grazing if they do have a horse that has some issues with, um, you know, dealing with carb sensitivity and, you know, talking about grazing in the early morning, as long as there wasn't a frost the night before, utilizing a grazing muzzle, things like that. And, the, the benefits of maybe beet pulp for a horse that has those issues or just horses in general. So I think we've covered a lot of great information today and uh, I'm excited to uh, get to our next one. Absolutely. I'm excited too. And I would say just one last comment that don't be afraid to bring in uh, an, an extra set of eyes. If you are just not quite sure whether your horse might be a little overweight and you just need some confirmation. You're not a bad horse owner or a bad horse parent. If your horse gets a little overweight, sometimes we all need a bit of help. Somebody else's set of eyes mm-hmm. to say, yeah, maybe, maybe a little heavy. Um, and then just be proactive. Yes. Yes. And I think that's the best that a horse owner can do is being proactive versus having to struggle and fight back later on. Uh, if you put yourself in a position where you just try to gain all the knowledge that you can on any of this, this stuff, it really sets you up for success and your horse for success and living a really happy long life. So anyway, okay. Excellent. Thank you again for your time, Dr. Cubit. And I look forward to the next time we get to chat. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the beyond the barn podcast by Stanley forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people. And subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.